Along with Pastor Todd Murray, I went this past week to visit one of our beloved homebound saints, Evelyn Hoff. She was there being ministered to at that particular moment when we arrived by one of our own wonderful girl, Sarah Ray, who's studying to be a nurse, and she was helping to care for Evelyn. Evelyn's health is a great challenge, and while she looks fantastic, frankly, always dressed impeccably well and is so very pretty, she has now difficulty breathing. She cannot hear very well, and she is losing almost all of her eyesight. And when I visited her, as I have on many other occasions, she communicated that part of her spiritual feeding was listening to preachers on television like Adrian Rogers and Charles Stanley and others. She also has a computer screen which allows her to project the words of her Bible onto another screen above the computer with very, very large projections so that the letters and the sentences of her Bible can be thus made very large and she is more easily able to read. But alas, virtually all of this is gone now. She is 95 years old. She said that there are now only two ways that she can receive any spiritual input. One, she still manages to read that small little devotional, which she's able then to project on that screen, called Our Daily Bread. It's difficult, however. She still fights with all her heart to read. And secondly, she continues to receive the cassette tapes of my sermons. And she said that because of her hearing condition, she needs to turn up the volume really loudly when she listens to me preach. And of course, I love to hear that. She said it was okay with her next-door neighbor there at Parkway Village. They have adjoining apartment rooms. And she said it was okay with her neighbor because she is also hard of hearing and never complains. <laughs> she used to have a tremendous ministry of writing to others and to encourage them, and I was the beneficiary of several of those very encouraging letters from Evelyn Hoff. She has written over the years in this homebound condition her children, her grandchildren, her great-grandchildren, but she's not able to do that much anymore. In the past, I have received these letters of encouragement like a cool drink of water and a parched sunshine. But this, too, is all but gone now. She did indicate that with what strength she has left, she uses in praying for me. And for all of those that she has been sitting under their teaching over the years, she said that she prays for every faithful ministry, every faithful minister of the gospel, that they would continue to preach the truth in such a way that God would bring revival, spiritual awakening to this country. She's truly a remarkable woman of God, still working as hard as I have ever witnessed someone her age attempting to minister to others, 95 years old. And I let her know on Tuesday morning that her ministry of praying for me and 
continuing with all her heart to fight to listen to my messages was a far greater ministry to me than I have ever had toward her. And as I thought about this dear, wonderful Christian lady, I thought to myself, she is the living embodiment of what the Apostle Paul speaks of here in Romans chapter 3. And I'd like to invite you to turn there, if you will, Romans chapter 3, specifically verses 21 to 26. There the Apostle Paul says, Romans 3, 21 to 26, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This week I saw a living demonstration of that in Evelyn Hoff. She is continuing to live the Christian life by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Her justification by faith alone is a beautiful thing to witness because she refuses to give up. She does everything in her power, even given her failing eyesight, her hearing, and now even as she labored so desperately to breathe as Todd and I were with her this week. She does everything that she can possibly do to study, to pray, to read, even given all of these challenges, proving that she desires to remain faithful to Jesus to the very, very end. One last thing I'll share with you that Evelyn Hoff told me. She told me that it had been a while since she'd received my cassette tapes, and she was overjoyed to have recently received a big package of tapes. And she said that she had been a bit discouraged and therefore needed to be uplifted and was so looking forward to listening to all those tapes for spiritual encouragement. And she said that she pulled out the first tape to find this uplifting sermon, and it was titled, The Wrath of God. (laughs) So she said, well, I'll pick the next tape. And she looked at that, and it said, The Wrath of God, Part 2. And then another, The Wrath of God, Part 3. And one of the things that I told Evelyn at that point was to remember that the Lord needs to inform us of the bad news before we can really hear the sweet good news of the gospel. She agreed, of course. The late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, for many years pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, right in the heart of Philadelphia, wrote about this very thing that Evelyn and I were speaking about on Tuesday. Here's what he said. 
If we do not understand that apart from Jesus Christ, we are under God's wrath and destined for an eternity of judgment, we can hardly appreciate the greatness of what God has done for us in providing salvation through Christ's atonement. People in our day generally think that they are on great terms with God, or that if they are not, it is only because God is a bit out of sorts and peevish, though He will probably get over it. That is not the case at all, Boyce says. On the contrary, the case is as Paul presents it in the first chapter of Romans. We have rejected God, suppressing the truth about Him in spite of the fact that God has revealed it to us. As a result, God is already in the process of unleashing His wrath. He has given us up to the consequences of our sin. How are we to escape from such captivity? In ourselves, he says, we cannot. But now, says Paul, in place of wrath, righteousness from God has been made known. This is the one single way of salvation from the wrath to which our sin has subjected us. But thank God, there is one way. This is precisely how Paul wants to bring us now in our study of the book of Romans into a brand new section of this epistle. And after describing in detail the nature of human sinfulness and God's wrath upon it, Paul now says that God has provided that one way that Boyce was talking about, that one way out of our depravity and our curse. And here, from Romans 3, beginning in verse 21, all the way through chapter 4, verse 25, he gives us the glorious good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, which gives us a way out of the bad news of sin and hell. And for Evelyn Hoff, and for all of the rest of us who believe, we can now be encouraged, greatly encouraged by the uplifting of the hearing of the good news. Notice what Paul says, But now, but now, this is, beloved, a major turn. A major turn in this letter. David Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote specifically about this one little phrase, But now, and he said about this phrase, and therefore the passage itself, that it was the great turning point in Paul's letter. This is where it is, folks. It turns on its, on its axis right here and right now. He exclaimed that there are no more wonderful words, does Lloyd-Jones say, in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now. Professor C.E.B. Cranfield called it the center and heart of the whole section of Paul's letter. And Leon Morris, great commentator and theologian from Australia, by the way, suggested that, quote, it may possibly be the most important single paragraph ever written. That's high commendation. This may be in our Bibles, in the whole of Scripture, 
the most important set of words in the history of mankind. You interested in studying it? Martin Luther wrote in the margin of his Bible that this section was, quote, the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. Do you write notes like that in the margin of your Bible? This is a most important section of Scripture. And verses 21 to 26, beloved, is therefore a most important, if not the most important passage in all the Word of God, and therefore we must study it carefully. I tried to get it all in. I really tried. But I couldn't do it. And as I surveyed some of the others who have preached on that passage, I'm in good company because neither could they. There's just too much here. Too many great words. Too many words to chase around all over the Bible to see their import. Notice the word righteousness in verse 21. Notice the word justification or justified in verse 24. Notice also the word grace in verse 24. Redemption, verse 24. Propitiation, verse 25. These are, these are incredibly important words. Theologically significant words. And I suppose you could outline this passage in a number of different ways. You might be able to center in on some of those words and do a thematic study. But I'm choosing, because I'm an expositor, to go through this text line by line, phrase by phrase, and in some cases word by word, and I want to outline it in this way. There are four things that Paul wants us to know about the person of God. Four things. Here they are. The righteousness of God, the redemption of God, the propitiation of God, and the vindication of God. The righteousness of God, the redemption of God, the propitiation of God, and the vindication of God. You ought to know those words. As a student of Scripture and as a believer in Christ, these are the most important kinds of words that you and I ought to know. We ought to master them. We ought to know what they mean by heart because they are the essence of the gospel. We're going to look first of all this morning, I trust and hope, with the two of these four, the righteousness of God and the redemption of God, and they are found for us in verses 21 to 24. Let's look first of all at the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God in verses 21 to 23. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now the righteousness of God, which Paul speaks of here, is narrowly defined as God's saving righteousness. His saving righteousness, not His judging righteousness per se. His judging righteousness 
is what we have been speaking on for almost two chapters here in Romans, all the way from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. That's where Paul centers in on the judging righteousness of God. He's a holy God. He is a righteous God. He will judge sin. And His judging righteousness, if we can call it that, has been revealed. And it has been revealed to show that God is true and that every man is a liar. Every man is a sinner, and God will judge. And you remember in verses 9 to 20, which we spoke on last time, gave us a culminating sense of the all-pervasiveness of sin. Notice it with me. He says, for instance, at the end of verse 10, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God, he says in this concluding statement, before their eyes. This is, this is the culmination statement of all that he has said from chapter 1 verse 18 all the way through this text that speaks of the judging righteousness of God. Paul, however, says, not leaving us in that hell-bound, cursed condition, says in verse 21, but now, but now. And it's meant to signal that a new age has begun in salvation history. It's a new time. It's the dawning of a new age. Notice what he says back in chapter 1, verse 16. He'd already spoken of this saving righteousness of God. And he said that it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It has been revealed. But then he says, I must also reveal something to you. And that is not simply the saving righteousness of God, but the judging righteousness of God. In other words, he said exactly what I said to Evelyn. In order for you to understand how good God is, how uplifting God can be, I must first show you how bad man is before you can see how gracious God is. And so almost as though he has to stop in verses 16 and 17 by saying in verse 18, here is the wrath of God. I cannot go on to tell you about the saving righteousness of God as contained in the gospel. I need to tell you about God's judging righteousness, His impeccability towards sin, that which He must do. He must judge sin. But he says here in verse 21, now, now I want you to know after having established the unalterable fact that God is going to judge sin, there's a way out. There's a way out. But now, the judging righteousness of God, praise God, 
has an answer. It has an answer. The saving righteousness of God that he speaks of in verses 16 and 17 as revealed in the gospel has been manifested, he says. Apart from the law. And in verse 22 he says that that saving righteousness of God as revealed through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. This doesn't mean, of course, that before the coming of Jesus Christ there was no saving righteousness of God. It doesn't mean that at all. That would be inaccurate for us to say. What Paul intends surely to say here is to communicate there's a new era in the history of God's salvation plan. It's now been manifested, he says, apart from the law. There was an old system called the Mosaic legislation, the Mosaic economy, the old covenant, the old way. And now God has revealed that Jesus Christ has come to bring salvation wholly apart from the Mosaic system of law, the law covenant. Whereas before God had commanded His people to observe all of His statutes, all of His dictates through the law of Moses, and even the Gentiles who, He says in Romans 2, observe an unwritten law, an unwritten code that's written on their hearts, namely their conscience, now God has declared, now God has declared manifested, revealed that faith in Jesus Christ, the very person of Jesus, the one who came from Bethlehem in Nazareth to Judea, that one, Jesus Christ, is the way to be right with God. That's what he's saying. God had set up a temporary system, as it were, a temporary system of administration, a way to deal with human beings, the Mosaic Law. And it was designed to do two things. One, it was designed for them, that is the children of Israel and anyone else who would be a follower of Yahweh, to respond to that law by their obedience. It regulated the lives of God's people. But secondly, what I'm sure none of them really realized, fully at least, some of them no doubt did, as God was gracious to them, that in an attempt to keep the law, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. You couldn't possibly live by all of the regulations of what God had required. You found yourself, as we do, up against the law of God, chafing because it says, don't do that, and we do it. Paul says, I would not have even known about coveting if the law had said, do not covet. It conjures up, it pushes to the surface our sinful condition. It doesn't show us how good we are, it shows us how bad we are. It doesn't show us how much law we can keep and get by to be in the right with God. It shows us our ultimate condemnation, the law. It's holy, it's perfect, it's good, Paul says, but it can't save. And if there's ever going to be a hope for anyone in time and eternity, God must give us a way out of something like that. He must provide for us a way. 
And he says now in the kindness and forbearance of God, he has chosen to reveal a righteousness apart from the law, a righteousness that you could not attain on your own, which no one could anyway because of what Paul said in this middle section here of Romans 1.18 to 3.20. It's our depravity. We, we can't respond to it. We can't be good enough. We can't give ourselves over fully and completely to the law. And Paul says, I know. I know. I'm one of you. I realize this. And God has revealed to me by His inspiring Holy Spirit that there is a way. The saving righteousness of God. Which the law, he says, by the way, look at verse 21. The law and the prophets, capital L, capital P, the law and the prophets, they bore witness to it. They pointed to this other way. They, they spoke about it. The law and the prophets were like signposts signaling the way of salvation. It was yet ahead. It's coming. A day is coming. A new era is going to dawn. It's going to come into existence. And God's saving righteousness is, according to verse 22, defined like this. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's how you become right with God. That's how you become right with God. It is a righteousness which is not your own. You can't become righteous through supposed righteous living. Because Paul has just shown us that no one is righteous. Not even one. The righteousness of God is not obtained through any of those means and so much more. It is attained, indeed granted, solely on the basis of faith in Jesus. I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 8. You'll see this comparison of the old era and the new. Listen to the language of Hebrews chapter 8, beginning with that Old Testament quotation in verse 8. Notice how the writer to Hebrews talks about this, this new eon, this new age, and how it eclipses the old. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, Hebrews 8.8, 8, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. Notice that, a new covenant. And with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant... You see, they broken that covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds. You see, in that other covenant, that old age, they did not have the Holy Spirit as resident within. He says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. An internal reality by virtue of the Holy Spirit from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And notice verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Yes. This is what Paul is referring to precisely here. But now, 
But now a new age has dawned. The new covenant is here. The old system is outmoded and the new era has begun. And it is all bound up in this phrase, believe it or not, but now. But now. Do you realize what we could say about these verses? Do you realize the magnitude of the sweep of such things? It is, it is mind-boggling. In all your attempts to become right with God through some skewed view of your own righteousness, which Paul has totally obliterated in this last section of Romans, totally so. It's impossible for you to do that. And if the Jews of Paul's day thought that they could attain some kind of righteousness by law-keeping, or maybe they thought that the coming into the covenant with God was by grace, but then you had to obey the law in order to keep yourself in the covenant by works, you couldn't do that either. Because God's saving righteousness, Paul says, is apart from the law. And your only hope, my friends, is to be found in Jesus Christ. You cannot be right with God. Your only hope of being right with Him is through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. That is His message right here, right now. And again, this would have been shattering to these Jews. Shattering. Can you imagine? It would... It would turn their system upside down. How many times do we read of Jesus' confrontation with these religious leaders in the Gospels? And they say, but we have Abraham as our father. We are teaching the law of Moses. What do you teach? But notice what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? The Jews' boasting. What's his answer? What's his answer there? It is excluded. There can be no boast. But what kind of law? By a law of works? The Jews would say, yes, by a law of works. He says, no, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And is it just that so with the Jews only? No, he says. With the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Do you see then it is by faith? It's by faith. It's apart from law. A new age has dawned, Israel's Messiah, to which the law and the prophets have all pointed. And they missed it. They missed it. They, they were trying to obey as perfectly as they could obey the shadows and miss the reality. The reality of Christ. Did not Jesus say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I would have wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would, what? Not. You would not. You missed it. You're try, trying, he says in Romans 10, to establish a righteousness of your own. You can't do it. The new covenant has come. A new age 
has begun. Just think. Just think if God had said, every single person without distinction, Jew, non-Jew, you've been judged in my judging righteousness as a guilty, vile, wretched sinner with absolutely no hope. And that is it. That is final. You are condemned to hell forever. No way out. No response from me. Would God be totally righteous in doing so? Yes. Totally righteous. We are sinners. He is not. But he says to our 21st century, there is a way. There is a way. I, by my own grace, have provided a way. I've provided a way. Let me ask you, do you believe in the person of Jesus Christ? No, not just the facts about Him. Not just the fact of His death and His burial and His resurrection and His ascension to the Father. No, not just the facts about Him. Do you know Him? Experiential knowledge, saving knowledge that can only come by virtue of the saving righteousness of God. The saving righteousness. That's your only hope of rescue. When a woman of 95 years of age sits in her apartment and continually desires to hear the Word of God being preached, it is precisely because she has been declared righteous before God through her faith in Jesus Christ. You don't do that on your own. Oh, someone might say, oh, but there are fastidious Jews. And yes, I've seen them too. I've been to Israel twice and I see them. And they're up against the wailing wall. And they're praying fervently, feverishly. You say, there's desire. There's fervency. There's commitment. But it's no different than what Paul said about himself in Philippians 3 when he looked back on his pre-conversion days. And he says, as to the law found blameless but I now count all those things to be rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's what a, that's what a 95-year-old precious godly woman believes and would die for. And what's more, it is what she is presently living for. She lives for the sake of having God preeminent in her life. That's the saving righteousness of God. She isn't attempting to be declared righteous before God on the basis of her reading the printed page or listening to the tape player. It is solely on the basis of God's plan, but now to bring Jesus Christ into the world to die for sinners like her. And I tell you, to sit down with her and talk with her, is a marvelous experience in watching someone who is justified by faith through her abiding trust in what Jesus did on her behalf. She's rescued from any pretense, any boasting about what she has done. She's relying completely upon the object of her faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Christ who has become her righteousness before God. Is that what you're trusting in? Is that what you're trusting in, young people? Don't trust in the faith of your parents. 
Don't believe that because they believe, then you believe too. Oh, it's wonderful to have them as a model. It's wonderful to have them as an example. But you can't believe on the basis of their belief. You must have as your object of faith the Lord Jesus Christ, not your parents' faith. You must believe. And Paul says, verse 27, what becomes of boasting then? Can I boast in the law? Can I boast in my circumcision? Can I boast in my Bible reading? Can I boast in my tape playing? No. I boast in nothing save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now you may be saying at this point, well, since Paul has prior to this new section of Romans been speaking and or to the Jews, he must be speaking then of their own condemnation and not mine as a non-Jew. Maybe that's what he's talking about here. Well, Paul covers your very question by what he goes on to say at the end of verse 22. Look at it. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, he answers that question. There is no distinction. We're not talking here now about Jews only. We're talking about all Jews and all non-Jews. That's everybody. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Total depravity. Complete wickedness. doesn't mean that you are as bad as you could be. It just means that sin has pervaded, pervaded your entire being. You can't glorify God. Why? Because it says... All are falling short of the glory of God. By the way, it's a continuing present tense. Always and forever falling short of the glory of God. We should probably even translate it that way. For all have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. Didn't I just read verses 9 to 20? Doesn't that tell us our condition, our state There is therefore no one on earth except Jesus Christ Himself who is God who claim that they have no sin. Jesus has no sin. All others claim it. It isn't true. All have sinned. You cannot be righteous like God because of your sin and you cannot attain the glory of God because you are forever, He says, falling short of it. And so am I. I lived number of years in California, and I remember taking a trip. I think it's about 26 miles off the shore of the California coast, near the L.A. area. It's called Catalina Island. And I remember getting on a boat. I was a single man. And I just wanted to experience what Catalina Island was like. And as soon as we went offshore on this boat with several people, I immediately became sick as a dog. It was terrible. I've only had one other experience like that, save my migraines, by going up a very tall mountain near Estes Park, Colorado, near Fort Collins. And those two experiences were enough for me to know that I am no fisherman on the sea and I am no mountain climber. Because in both cases, one altitude sickness and one seasickness, I 
felt terrible. It was raunchy. It was bad. And I shall not go into the details. But one thing I realized was this. That when I came back from Catalina Island, in addition to not wanting ever to go back there again, not that the island itself wasn't pretty, it was, but I didn't want to go through that experience again, I realized something spiritually profound. If you were to try to take yourself and do the longest long jump you could possibly try and jumped off the coast of California into the Pacific Ocean and you tried to jump in one fail swoop onto Catalina Island, what would happen? You wouldn't make it. 26 miles. Nobody could make it. The long jump record itself for years and years and years was in the high 20s. That's feet. Not miles. Feet. And try as you might, and you and I wouldn't go very far, but Bob Beeman, who used to hold the record for the long jump, Mexico City, 1968, and others who have now surpassed his record, even the best athlete, even the best long jumper, even if you watch it this week on the television and you see in those Grecian Olympics the opportunity for the long jump record to be broken by either man or woman, would they be able to jump from the coast of California to Catalina Island? No. That's how far it would be for you to attain your own righteousness. Even the best of us, even those of us that would assume we are the most proficient, that we are the most athletic, that it might be possible with some, but not me. No, all are excluded. The Anglican bishop, Handley Mool, once put it this way, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it, God's glory, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine, and you are on the crest of an alp. But you are as little able to touch the stars as they. It's true. No matter what you did, no matter how hard you tried, if you attempted to jump to attain the righteousness of God, you would fall flat on your face and you would not even come close to the glory of God. And you and I, whether we are Jews or non-Jews, can never attain an inherent righteousness based on our works. It is because, Paul says, our sin has caused us to forever fall short of the glory of God. He's holy other. He's the righteous God. We stand before Him as a sinner without hope because He is righteous altogether. You imagine the boasting, the sheer idiocy of someone who assumes that in their sinful state, their sinful condition, which is of course part of the problem because they don't think they are, some people, that they could stand before a holy God with sin in their life and then they would audaciously say to Him, I can stand in Your presence on my own. That's why it's utterly antithetical to Paul. You can't do it. It can't be done. God is repulsed 
by man's sin, and He will judge it thoroughly. That's the condemnation. But notice He says, but now, but now, boy, it speaks to that dilemma, doesn't it? God says, but now. And in verse 24, he shows, how could God receive us into his presence? I'll tell you how he says, and we are justified by his grace as a gift. That's our second outline point, the righteousness of God. Excuse me, the redemption of God. The redemption of God. Verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, the only hope of a sinner like you and me being in the right with God is if we receive God's gracious gift through Christ and His work of redemption. Oh, my friends, these are great words. Justification, grace, redemption. Look at the first one. Justification. He says that even though we are sinners who continually fall short of the glory of God, God's righteousness is defined precisely like this. It is our justification. You might even be able to read it without the parenthetical phrase about our falling short of the glory of God like this. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the package. That's the package. We are justified by His grace. Incidentally, this is the first time that Paul uses the participle of the verb for justification. It's the same word group as the word righteousness, but it's the first time he's using it as a verb to talk about us, that we are to be justified. What does that mean? Well, I want to speak more next week about a very, very present, raging debate within evangelicalism right now, within Christendom, about Justification. It is being assaulted, my friends, assaulted. And I want to talk more about that next time, especially in New Testament scholarly circles for those who are advocating the so-called new perspective on Paul. I want to talk about that. That's important for you to know about. But now I want you to simply know that Paul is actually referring here to a justification in a legal sense. It's our sentence of condemnation. That's what he's talking about. We are condemned. And God says that even in your condemned state, but now I've provided a way through my gift, my gift of grace, so that you now can be justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Oh, it pictures the imagery of our being brought before a law court. And that's exactly what's been happening in chapter 1, verse 18 and following, hasn't it? It's been a law court. Paul's been that that prosecuting attorney. And he says that mankind is sinful and he's under the judgment of God. And we went through all of that and he concludes there in verses 19 and 20 of Romans chapter 3 that there is no one, every mouth is going to be stopped, the whole world is going to be accountable to God for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's that capstone 
passage. That's that concluding statement that says we are all condemned. God is the judge. Paul is the prosecuting attorney. And he brings the case before God. And God takes that gavel and he slams it on the divine bench. And he says guilty, guilty, guilty as charged. So what do we do? Paul says, but now. But now there is a way for you to be justified by faith. You can be justified. That legal term, you can be declared not guilty. How? Listen to how Andrew Lincoln says it. God's righteousness is the power by which those unable to be justified on the criterion of works are set right with Him and being set in a right relationship with God involves His judicial verdict of pardon. Pardon. It is not that people are deemed innocent of the charges in the indictment against them. Their unrighteousness has been clearly depicted in Paul's argument. But he believes the righteous judge has acted ahead of time in history and in his grace has pronounced a pardon on those who have faith in Christ so that their guilt can no longer be cited against them. What do you think of such things? How do you ponder the great reality that even though you and I are deserving sinners of hell and judgment, that God Himself in His initiating grace has provided a way of escape? Who did I say initiated it? God. See, there's nothing in us. Nothing that we could do. No inherent righteousness. No ability to jump from here to Catalina Island. No ability whether you think you are someone who is better than someone else, if they are in the mine and you are on the highest of the Alps, we cannot touch the starry sky. We're all condemned. And we have nothing within ourselves to reckon ourselves as in a right standing with God. Nothing. We're condemned. It's over. Except that God desires to be gracious. You see, that's why we can't tread on grace. That's, that's why we can't turn the grace of God, Paul says to Titus, into licentiousness. You can't do it. You mean to tell me that there are people who say, Oh, thank you for the pardon. Thank you for the sentence of not guilty. I think I'll go out and live like the devil. Thank you. Thank you for the fire insurance. Thank you for saving me. I'll live like I want to now. No. The grace of God has been brought into this world, Paul says, to teach us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. The grace of God doesn't turn us into licentious people. It turns us into humble, submissive, grateful, godly people. The true grace of God. What is the origin of our justification? He says, by His grace. By His grace. Oh, is there not a greater word? Grace. God's unmerited, undeserved favor. You say, why? Why would God do that? What would compel Him? 
Ephesians 1. By the counsel of my own will. You know what that is translated in our 21st century language? Because I want to. Because I purpose to. Because I want to take a a people for my own possession who are zealous for good deeds. I want to shed the Holy Spirit abroad in their hearts. I want to set them on a right place. I want to rescue them from the domain of darkness. I want to transfer them into the kingdom of light. Why? Because I want to. Because I want to see my own glory on display. I want to see my grace be praised. And what do we say? Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for saving me. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Not my doing. If you said it was by your doing, Paul would give you one of those me genoita, no by no means. Absolutely not. May it never be. Perish the thought. Why? Because it diminishes the glory of God. It diminishes His doing. We want to exalt His doing. We want to praise His doing. We we want to say, I am brought into union with Jesus Christ by His doing. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to Thy cross I cling. And He says as we close, it's as a gift. Justified, Declared guilty, but pardoned by Jesus Christ and His cross work by His grace as a gift. Oh, a gift. It's not something you give to yourself. That's not a gift. That's a want. It's what you have received That's why Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Oh, you see, we're so prone as human beings with our pride to boast even in what has been given as a gift. Oh, His unmerited, undeserved favor is a gift, and it's the gift of righteousness. And it's precisely because it's unearned, unmerited, undeserved, that it is seen as a gift that comes to us from outside of ourselves, from a gracious, loving God. Now, you can't have it both ways. You can't say, God is helping me become a Christian. God is supplying grace, I'm supplying effort. Doesn't work like that. Doesn't work like that. And notice what he says at the end. He goes on to say that this gracious gift of our justification comes to us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the means. If grace is the origin, if that's the origi- originating 
initiating idea, then redemption is the means whereby God has done it. Through the redemption. Oh, and he takes not the imagery of a law court, but the imagery of the marketplace. And he says, you have been redeemed. You've been brought back. You've been bought out of the slave market of sin by God's money. By God's gracious gift. By the work of Christ. God has provided the ransom. God has provided the money. God's provided the means. And it's the redemption. And it's not just talking maybe about the marketplace of sin. It might also be, be hearkening all the way back to that Egyptian bondage. It's the slave market of sin. And it's the bondage to iniquity. That's what you've been redeemed from. Oh, we desperately need emancipation from our slavery to sin and our bondage to iniquity. As we close, let me ask you. Have you been delivered from the slave market of sin? Have you been redeemed from your bondage to iniquity? That's what God says Christ has provided. God's justifying grace is available through the redemption that is found only in Christ Jesus. And I ask you, will you receive this gift today? It's available today. Paul says later in Romans, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. Believe in Jesus Christ by faith and you'll be justified. That's your only hope. Evelyn Hoff has preached her one and only message today from the pulpit of the Bible Church of Little Rock. Believe in Jesus Christ and you'll be justified by His grace as a gift, redeemed for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, it is Your Gracious gift. Only you. Only you could provide what we so desperately need. We cannot attain to it ourselves. Thank you, Father, for granting us, those who believe, through your grace, our justification by faith. Lord, I pray that you will Hearken through believing ears and faithful eyes. Even those who might be hard of hearing and who have failing eyesight. The sensitivity to know our spiritual condition and to cling alone to Jesus Christ. Oh, and Lord, if there are those here who have already claimed Christ, and it is genuinely so, may we live not in licentiousness, not in loose living, but see Your grace for what it truly is, coming into this world, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, Let us be thankful, grateful 
for the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen.